Well, good morning, everyone. It's morning. It's good to it's good to be here with with you all again. Uh, I've preached here a couple times over the years, and it's always been uh, a blast. I'm really glad for the the children's moment. I was as I was preparing the the sermon this week, I was I was starting to feel bad about not talking about the Father love of God um, for my entire sermon, and so I'm really glad that we got to spend some time focusing on that and, and reflecting on that and, and, and letting our kids know um, how our earthly dad uh, can sometimes point us and compare to um, our, our Heavenly Father. Uh, it's been fun. This, uh, about a year ago, I, 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 was, I had been a youth pastor, and I, I stepped down to, to go to graduate school and uh, pursue a, a master's of theology. And so I, as we've been doing that, we've been kind of um, searching and, and trying to find uh, places of worship. And it's always hard when, you, when, you're, when you're looking for a new church. Most of you have experienced that before. Uh, I have not. I, I grew up in one church and worked in two. So looking for a church was a new thing for, for me. And uh, it can get kind of lonely. Uh, when, when, you, when you're going to church time after time and you don't know people, um, you, you kind of just feel bad and you feel lonely and, and, and it's hard sometimes to, to get up and go. It's very easy just to sleep in on a Sunday morning when you don't know people. Um, but my wife and I, uh, we, we, we found that uh, oftentimes when we were feeling lonely, we would just journey back here to Applewood because um, just the love and the, the authentic joy that you have uh, for each other um, just always felt like a warm family to us. And so uh, we've appreciated being uh, able to, to bounce around and, and, and kind of be here worshiping, worshiping with you from time to time. Uh, and, and it makes me even more excited to, to, to give this message to you today uh, because I know it'll be well received. Uh, it comes from probably this last year of uh, pretty intense studies. Uh, I, I've written uh, multiple large papers that you would really not care to read, um, uh, kind of surrounding the topic today that I'm going to talk about. And so as I was preparing, I was getting to kind of review some of the things that I've learned and worked on, uh, and I'm so excited to be able to to, to share this with you. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, our adoption through the Holy Spirit. And I know Guy kind of briefly touched on this last week if you were here. And we're going to take a really in-depth look um, of specifically the Apostle Paul's theology and how he sees us as being adopted um, into the family of God uh, by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when I'm preparing for things, I like to look at popular blogs. And a uh, blog is just someone like writes something on the internet. It doesn't have to be true. They can just put it up there and you read it. Uh, so you have to be careful what you, what you look for. And uh, one of the blogs that I really love to read is called Rage Against the Minivan. And uh, it's a mom, and, and her whole goal in life is to avoid the stereotypical mom role of getting a minivan to drive her kids around. Um, ironically, she has a minivan now uh, because it's just more convenient. Uh, she keeps her blog title the same, uh, Rage Against the Minivan. And, and what she does, what I love about her blog, is she tends to find the people who often are not given a voice, the people who are marginalized, uh, especially in our churches, who aren't heard, who aren't listened to. And, and she, she gets to know them, and she makes their voice public on her blog. Uh, one of the things that she wrote about was adoption. She has friends that have adopted kids, uh, and, and she's noticed that oftentimes um, adoptive parents get asked all sorts of really weird questions or, or have comments made towards them that are, are my, well-intentioned but, but also mildly offensive. And, uh, and so she wrote, um, here are, two th- are 10 things that we need to stop saying to adoptive parents. And I thought maybe this would help us get our mind around um, adoption. She says, the f- uh, number 10, you look, li- you look like you could be her real mother. 
Newsflash, people, I am her real mother. Uh, number nine, she says, uh, did you get, uh, you, you would say to somebody, did you get to meet her father? She says, yep, in fact, I'm married to him. Uh, number eight says, that's such a kind, charitable thing you did, adopting, adopting Alex. Well, that's sweet that you think Marcus and I are such angels, and funny you should mention it. Uh, you know, we're, only have our, we're having our wings dry cleaned right now. Um, she says, there's no mistake, it was not an act of charity. Number seven, uh, this person says, uh, oh, you had your baby the easy way. And she says, well, if by easy, uh, you mean filling out enough paperwork to make war and peace look like a comic book, then yes, easy. Uh, Number six, you know the birth mother? Wow, aren't you afraid she's going to stalk you? Wow, indeed. You've obviously been watching way too many after-school specials. (laughs) Number five, uh, aren't you afraid that your daughter may have inherited some of her birth parents' less desirable traits? Uh, No, but aren't you afraid yours has? Uh, number four, uh, so what's wrong with her birth mother? Why did she get pregnant if she wasn't going to keep her? And she says, this question really gets me. I have no idea why Alex's birth mother makes life decisions that she does. But you know what? It's not my place to judge her, nor is it really any of my business. All I know is that Alex's birth mother is a good person and is trying to make her way through life the best way she knows how, pretty much just like the rest of us on this planet. Number three, It said, are you going to let Alex meet her birth mother? Alex is adopted. She's not in prison. We wouldn't think of keeping Alex from learning anything about her life, including meeting her birth mother, if that's what she wants. Number two, are you going to tell Alex she's adopted? Nah, we thought we'd keep that a secret. Of course we're going to tell her. And number one, uh, the number one thing to stop saying to adoptive parents, she's so lucky. Please, not a day goes by when I don't thank the Lord above for my amazing husband and my incredible daughter. We are truly the lucky ones. So you can see there are oftentimes, uh, we, we, we are well-intentioned. We say good things, um, and sometimes they come off wrong. And, and like I said, what I love about this author is the way that she brings out um, some of those things and help us to understand uh, what some of these people who don't often get a chance to share with us, uh, how they actually feel. Uh, And when it comes to adoption, it's kind of a sensitive issue. And it's a sensitive issue that uh, I hope that as we talk through today, um, that as we look at God's view of adoption through the Holy Spirit, um, we ourselves will become more sensitive to what's going on uh, even in our own lives and our identity as adopted children of God. Before we get too much further, uh, your your neighbor question for the day, to turn around or turn beside you and talk about uh, just off the top of your head or from what you heard Guy talking about last week, Uh, What does it mean for you to be adopted into the family of God? What does it mean for you to be adopted into the family of God? Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and discuss that. And as you guys finish up the conversation, think about whether or not you'd be willing to share your answer with the group or if you'd be willing to share your neighbor's answer with the group if, if they're unwilling. So what does it mean that you are adopted into the family of God? Who would like to to share? What does that mean to you to be adopted into the family of God? Chosen. One word. It's a great word. Yeah, that solidarity, being together, is a big part of that. Anyone else? Full benefits of sonship. Absolutely. Yeah, our identity as adopted children of God is is truly a gift. And And it's one that I don't know that we spend enough time talking about. 
Uh, when, we, when we come to days like, oh, go for it. Yeah. Yeah, children do not adopt parents. Yeah, and I think, I think for the most of us, we don't take the time to reflect on it. Because it's easy to come to a Father's Day uh, service and talk about the Father love of God, which is an important characteristic of God. And the Bible clearly talks about um, God as, as, as Abba. And, and, and we often will, will equate that with, with kind of a daddy-like thing, a child calling out, calling daddy, this intimate relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. And we, we could talk at length about that, and it would feel good, and it would challenge dads, and it would be great. And while this is good and appropriate, uh, I think that it can also cause us to lose focus on another aspect of God. And, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, yeah, Mother's Day, right? But we already did that a month ago, right? God is nurturing. God cares for us. And we talked about that at length. A month ago, you know, we, we, we got our mom's flowers and we did our chores once and the only time probably for the year and it made her feel really special. Um, so they had their day. But I'm not talking about mothers either. What I want to talk about today uh, is often those voiceless people that come to churches and they sit in the audience on days like today and they bear unnecessary shame and they don't feel like they have a place in the family of God. Think about it. As we celebrate year after year the fatherly and motherly aspects of God, we begin to isolate people in our congregations who are in deep pain because of these very subjects. We isolate people who are single, who don't have kids, who experienced abuse at the hands of a mother or father, people who are struggling to get pregnant and want to become a mother or father, people who have experienced miscarriages or the loss of a child. People who have experienced the pain of an abortion. And on this day when we normally glorify the earthly offices of fathers or, or maybe of mother, um, sometimes I think we can do more harm than good. Because by glorifying this earthly office, um, we're, we're subtly telling, we're, we're quietly telling people, you aren't quite there yet. But one day, someday, you'll understand. And so today I want to speak for those in the audiences and churches who feel this isolatedness, who, who feel isolated when, when we talk about the paternal aspects of God. I want to speak to them not because they're voiceless, but because many times our churches have, have, have silenced them by saying, one day when you're a father or a mother, you'll understand, like us, you'll understand the love of God. And I want to say today for them that enough is enough, and that there is a way to understand the love of God without being a father or a mother. You see, I have many friends who are struggling to get pregnant right now, and today I grieve with them. I have many friends, or a few friends, that have, that have lost a child, and I mourn for them on a day like to this. And so I don't want to be up, stand up here and, and, and subject anyone to a sermon that says, one day when you're a parent, you'll understand the love of God. Instead, I want to give them a sermon that tells the truth about our security in the family of God, and that truth has nothing to do with our earthly family. See, as Christians, we claim this promise to go forth and multiply, right? This, this, this command of God to populate the earth, and that's good. Clearly, having kids and being a family is part of God's design for our life. But at its best, our earthly family is a minor glimpse of the intimacy and the joy that we will get to experience one day in heaven. But at its worst, our earthly families can become an idol. They become an idol when we quietly teach one day, when you're a parent, you'll understand the love of God. So today I want to talk about our identity in the family of God that is rooted deeply, deeply in the concept of our sonship, of our daughtership, 
Um, but it's not rooted because of our birth. It's rooted because of our adoption. See, adoption is a great equalizer of the love of God. If we begin to understand how our identity is rooted in adoption, we will know the love of God. And so when somebody says to us, one day you'll know the love of God, we can smile back and say, I already do. The book of Romans is a wonderful book, and it's full of, of, of petty fights and disagreements and, and Paul trying to prove his own apostleship, uh, and, and it's a wonderful book. Uh, we're, we're positive that Paul wrote the book of Romans sometime in the late 40s after Jesus. Uh, and when, before Paul wrote this book, many of the Jewish leaders that had converted to Christianity that started following Christ uh, had, had been chased out of Rome. Uh, Rome was worried that they were going to incite riots and, and, and cause disruption amongst the people. So they chased all the leaders of the Christian religion out. Well, I mean, you, you can chase the leaders out, but God's still going to get his work done. And the, the Gentiles, the people who weren't Jewish, began to have house churches and began to grow in their knowledge of Christ. And, and they began to form new traditions and new things in the freedom of Christ uh, as they worshipped Jesus. And so as the Jewish people came back into Rome, um, there was all this disagreement. Uh, Paul talks at length in Romans about the Gentiles and the Jewish believers. He often distinguishes them between stronger and weaker, yet he doesn't tell us which one is stronger and weaker. He merely says that there is some benefit to the festivals that the Jewish people celebrate. There's some benefit to, to the yearly calendar. But there's also a lot of benefit to the freedom in Christ that the Gentiles celebrate as well. So he doesn't tell us who's who, but he does say we have to find a way to come together. And the whole book of Romans is about bringing people together um, in, under one identity. And that one identity that he brings everybody together is adoption through the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Romans chapter 8, uh, it's where we're going to spend most of our time today. Uh, typically we would read scripture together out loud, uh, but because this is going to be the entire chapter, um, I'm going to ask that you just follow along as I read. We'll have, uh, we'll have it up here as well uh, as I read. Um, and you should know that in Romans 8, we have, uh, of, of the 35 appearances of the word spirit in the book of Romans, 21 of them are solely in chapter 8. And so we're pretty positive that when Paul wants us to know something about the Holy Spirit, he probably explained it in Romans 8. But just to help illustrate this point, uh, whenever I say the word spirit in this reading, I want you to snap your fingers. All right? And if you don't know how to snap, you're about to get a lot of practice. And let's just, for once for all, I'll say spirit and you snap. Spirit? All right. But only as I read this first. Don't do it through the whole sermon because that, be, that would be bad. Romans chapter 8. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who... <laughs> I should have practiced this. Um, <laughs> because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that, righteousness, that the righteous requirement of law might be fully met in us who did not live according to flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. 
You, however, are not in the realm of flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, and you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our past sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for creation awaits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. What hopes... For what they already have. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we will wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through, uh, through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What, then, shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who will be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also, along with him, graciously graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. So you probably noticed that the latter part of the chapter Uh, Paul didn't mention the Spirit very much, um, but as you know from the soreness in your fingers, the point was well made. Um, The Spirit is very much a part 
of our adoption through Christ. Uh, now, I'd love to, to break this, this whole chapter down verse by verse by verse and explain every little nuance, um, but we'll be here till next Sunday, um, and I think Guy wants to preach next Sunday. So, um, for your sake, uh, I'm going to go ahead and take a bird's eye view of this whole entire chapter. Uh, so, I want you to keep your Bibles open to Romans 8, uh, and I will read any other supporting scriptures that we end up going through. In this chapter, Paul's not making any new statements, but he's clarifying some things that have become a little confusing. In order to have some perspective of what Paul meant, uh, we have to jump way, way back to the beginning of our story. See, in Genesis 1, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We're all familiar with this story, uh, with the creation story, but what eludes us is often the Spirit's very presence uh, in creation. You see, in the second verse, it describes the earth as formless, empty, um, and darkness over the deep. In a word, chaos. When we sang beautiful things and we sang, out of chaos, life is being found, that was written after this verse. We were singing of this concept. It wasn't as if there was nothing there, indeed, because there was water there that the Spirit was hovering over. Uh, Creation becomes an act of taking chaos and making something beautiful. The Spirit of God, uh, you all know, is is an actual person of the Trinity. Guy has talked about that, uh, and he, he showed, I think last week, how even Jesus refers to the Spirit as he, giving a personal pronoun. Um, Also, in the Old Testament, whenever we read the word spirit, uh, the, the Hebrew word for it is, is ruah or rauch. And what that means is, is wind. Um, and, and it has a feminine pronoun to it. It's as if um, the, the, the writers of the Bible want to make clear that the spirit is a person, uh, an actual person that, that wills and acts and is a part of creation. It's important to know this because in the, in the Genesis story, it talks about uh, the spirit of God uh, was hovering over the waters. And, and this phrase is one of expectancy. It's, it's like a mother hen ho- hovering over her little chicks, or, or even better, it's like a pregnant woman expecting to give birth. Creation is literally birthed by the Spirit. See, this is the first birth narrative that we read about in the Bible, and it comes from Spirit, the person of God who brings order from chaos. So that's why we read in verse 22 of Romans, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently, or we wait expectant. Paul is connecting our adoption through the Spirit back to creation. The same hovering Spirit who created the world hovers over us, eagerly expectant of the birth that is to come. And so we also become expectant. Paul is telling us a story. Uh, we, we know that if we wait patiently, uh, we, we know now from the story that we're, not, we're no longer waiting patiently because this adoption has already come to us through Christ, but he's setting up the story to help the Gentiles and Jewish people understand their own connection. See, the story that we all know is of the Spirit 
who gives birth to creation, and then after giving birth to creation, also gives birth to Christ. In the birth of Christ, we find the second birth narrative from the Spirit. Because in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, uh, the angel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Here again, we find the Spirit hovering over someone, expectant, this time quite literally bringing a child into this world. Jesus was conceived by the Spirit and therefore has a unique and intimate relationship with Spirit. This relationship was prophesied by Isaiah when he writes, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. This is an important verse in our understanding of spirit. Uh, it lays out the role of Christ in this world. Uh, Christ being born of the spirit, being led of the spirit, and in the power of the spirit has been anointed to proclaim the good news, the year of the Lord's favor, the release of, of the captives, to comfort all who mourn. And Christ does just that. And that's why Paul tells us in chapter 8, or in chapter 8, verse 8 of Romans, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When Paul writes of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, he's he's writing as the fulfilled promise of God. It is not necessarily the good works of Christ, and it's not necessarily the good works that we begin to do once we are in Christ. It is the promise of God to send somebody to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the release of the captives. The law requirement is met in Christ, but it's only met according to the Spirit. Jesus was fully human, born of a woman, and this makes Jesus able to live as flesh in this world, under the law of God. But Jesus is also born of the Spirit, and this allows the righteousness of God, or the fulfillment of the law, to be carried out. The righteousness of God was carried out on the cross. And that's why we read um, Jesus' words in John 19. When he received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. Without he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. When Jesus gives up his spirit, a third birth narrative occurs. And this one is ours. You see, if you remember the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus uh, in the night, and saying, you know, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus responds, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? I have to crawl into my mother's womb and be born again? That doesn't make sense. And I'm going right on, Nicodemus. That makes no sense at all. Uh, And Jesus says, no, not born of natural descent, but born of the Spirit. Um, Jesus is speaking of being born of the Spirit. Um, The Spirit is the one who birthed creation. It's the one who birthed the Christ child. And the Spirit is the one who gives us a rebirth. And this is done through adoption. Verse 9, Paul continues, You, however, are not in the realm of flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. 
And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, to daughtership. And by Him, by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So because of the Spirit, we are adopted. Um, We are born again into the family of God. So when we talk about mothers and fathers and earthly families, uh, I said sometimes at its worst, it can become idolatry, when it's the only thing we focus on. And that is because our families are in this world of flesh. I don't know if you've noticed, but our families are made up of a bunch of broken people. Uh, and they're hard to deal with sometimes because they're broken and they, and they, they do things that, that of, of the flesh, things of this world. We do that as well with our family members when we're not living according to the Spirit. And so when I think of family and when we talk of family, I want to talk of our spiritual family the family that is adopted and is co-heirs with Christ. When, uh, when Paul writes of adoption to the Romans, uh, he, he does so in a very powerful way that I just recently learned. And I want to share that with you. Because in the Roman culture, adoption was really prevalent. There are many times where uh, a, a father would go out and they would find uh, a kid and they would, they would adopt them. They have this big ceremony. It was this big deal. And when they adopted that son or daughter, uh, that child became an heir completely. That child had all the rights of a natural-born child with one exception. A natural-born child in the Roman world could be disowned. An adopted child could never be disowned. When Paul writes about our adoption as sons and daughters, he is saying, when God adopts us by the Spirit, we can never be disowned. We are secured. We have a future. We are and always will be heirs. Our spiritual family is secure, and nothing, not even death, will ever separate us. And that's why Paul finishes his chapter by saying, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. No, 
In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our earthly families aren't always bad. They can be a gift. They can be a glimpse of what eternity can look like. But they can also be a great distraction from the security we have through our adoption in the Holy Spirit. I wonder sometimes if we took seriously our identity as adopted, if it wouldn't change things in our churches. See, adoption is the great equalizer. We've all been taken from this horrible place in the world and given an inheritance that is grace in Christ. I mean, think about how this plays out in the world practically today. In China, um, there, there was and unfortunately still is um, a practice of, of killing baby girls. Girls are seen as, as inferior and, and, and often a bigger burden than, um, than the family could take on, especially in the rural villages. And so there's a practice of, of, of killing those babies uh, as, as a way of supporting the family. You all have heard of Mother Teresa, and you all know that she worked in orphanages. Her calling in life was to rescue as many babies as she could. When she would get invited to speak at a prayer breakfast, or, or even as she accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, her message was always the same. Don't kill the baby. Send them to me. Adoption was how Mother Teresa sought to bring peace to this world. And, and I don't mean this to be a political statement about adoption in any means, um, I just think in reflecting on adoption, I can't help but think of these babies in China and in other developing countries um, who are surviving more and more because their parents are being educated and because of adoption programs. And, and I wonder if adoption would, can fix some of the issues that we have here in the United States. See, Mother Teresa often chastises the United States in her writings because so many people, she says, choose abortions um, instead of giving up babies for adoptions. So she says, don't kill the baby, send them to me. And I think that adoption has to be one answer, one step in rescuing these precious children from an action they have no control over. The praise team can go ahead and, and come on up as I, as I finish. Uh, I, know, I don't want to say that adoption is an easy decision. It'd be really... Uh, easy for me to stand up here and say, oh, yeah, everybody adopt. It's really easy. Uh, but it's not. Uh, I think about all the struggles that come with adoption, um, particularly with the child, as they struggle to find their identity, as they, they look different and they come from a different culture um, than their family. They have questions about why they were given up. They wonder if they're even loved. And I always hear the adoptive parents saying, don't you know how much we love you? We came searching for you. We paid a great price. And now you're ours forever. But I think we can all relate to this identity as adopted children. Because this world doesn't want us. This world doesn't love us. It's casted us out. It's thrown us away. And I know that we wonder sometimes if we'll ever find love. And I think that's when we need to hear the voice of God saying, Don't you know how much I love you? I came searching for you when the world cast you out. I paid a great price. And now you are mine forever. After all, it is through adoption that we are rescued from this horrible world of flesh. Will you stand with me and read this verse aloud together? 
But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of his righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. As we continue standing and sing this next song about our Abba God, our Father, um, may, we do throw, may we do so through the eyes of adopted children, of a Father God who bought us at a great price, a Mother Spirit who gives us rebirth, and a Son Jesus who is our brother and our co-heir with him. Let us continue to worship. <laughs>